On October 7th, Hamas launched a series of coordinated attacks into Israel, killing more than 1,400 Israelis. Prime Minister Netanyahu responded by declaring war on Hamas. Since then, Israel has regained control of its border, placed Gaza under a complete siege, and launched a series of airstrikes that have killed more than 5,000 Palestinians, according to local authorities. Just over two weeks after Hamas's invasion of Israel, I'm here with Dr. John Alterman, director of the Middle East program at CSIS, to discuss the latest developments in the Israel-Hamas war. This conflict has the potential to escalate even more. Clashes between Israel and Hezbollah are mounting on the Lebanese border, violence has been surging in the Israel-occupied West Bank, and protests are breaking out across the Middle East. How likely is escalation with Hezbollah, and how will popular protest affect Arab states that have normalized relations with Israel? There are several questions in there. Let me first deal with the Hezbollah one, and then I'll talk about the, the Arab states one. I think Hezbollah, there's likely to be some escalation. I'm not confident that it's going to get out of control. My sense is that both sides would prefer measured escalation. Each side wants to send signals to the other. Hezbollah would have a hard time looking like it was doing nothing when there was an all-out war in Gaza. But I don't think Hezbollah wants to have a full-blown war with Israel now at a time when Lebanon is really reeling from economic crisis. I think Hezbollah fears that they would come out of that weaker and not stronger. But they do need to make their presence felt. And so on the northern border, it is most likely that there's a situation that's not quite peace and not quite war. But when you're in that situation, things can spin out of control very, very quickly. And that's something that I think the Israelis and the Americans are looking at very closely. In terms of Arab governments and their reaction to what's happening in Gaza, there was a sense that a lot of governments had that the populations had largely gotten over the Palestinian issue, that it was no longer salient, that young people were interested in entertainment and jobs, and they didn't really care about the Palestinians. We saw, especially in the last week, that there really is a connection to Palestinians that's felt broadly and deeply. After the bombing of the Athli Hospital, the governments of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates quickly called it a massacre. You heard a lot of people calling it a war crime. It turns out that Israel likely had nothing to do with the explosion, but the government's perceived need to respond was instant. I think you have a little more leeway in places like the Gulf, where there is a tradition of not demonstrating in public and potentially squeezing government officials. In places like Jordan, you have the opposite tradition. You have a tradition of people gathering to protest against the government. And I think you're going to see more and more of that, that certainly in private, people in the Gulf will be very critical. In public, people in Levant will be very critical. It will influence what governments do. Virtually all the governments in the Middle East hate Hamas as an outgrowth of the Muslim Brotherhood, as an Iranian proxy. They want Hamas gone, but they're very sympathetic to Palestinian lives, to Palestinian civilians. There's a sense that this is the strong oppressing the weak. And uh, I think governments are, are going to try to be navigating how they can quietly sustain the strategic alignment they have with Israel, but at the same time be seen to be defending the rights and the lives of millions of Palestinian civilians. The politics of the war are also affecting U.S. foreign policy in major ways. 
How did President Biden's most recent visit to Israel recalibrate the United States' relationship with the region? President Biden thought the most important thing was to establish a strong connection with Prime Minister Netanyahu because he felt that's the only way to have influence on Israeli decision-making. I've gotten a lot of questions from journalists about, isn't the president going to come to regret embracing Netanyahu? I'm not sure we're there yet. I think the president and his people would say it. The fact that we haven't had a, a flailing and immediate Israeli move into Gaza, the fact that Israelis seem to be thinking a little bit more about the kinds of strategic outcomes they want to achieve, is the consequence of the Americans on the one hand saying, we support you, but on the other hand saying, and as we support you, you got to think about where you're going. There really is this split. I think it's interesting because right after 9-11, there were a lot of Israelis who came to advise the Americans about terrorism. Said, look, we've been dealing with terrorism for a very long time and we can help you. And the Bush administration really welcomed that. The United States now has been fighting these insurgencies in the Middle East for decades, in Iraq and Afghanistan, in the counter-ISIS campaign in Iraq and Syria. And Americans feel we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot about how to fight. We've learned a lot about win over populations. We've learned about how to separate combatants from the people around them. And how you fight determines the political outcomes, and ultimately the political outcomes are what matters. The Israelis aren't really interested in hearing that. The Israelis are in a different place. They're talking about eradicating Hamas. They're not really thinking in political terms. And it seems to me that one of the consequences of the U.S. efforts in the greater Middle East after 9-11 was to understand that the military is just a very small piece. And the political piece is the larger, more important piece and the harder piece, but the one you have to focus on. How well Americans can convince Israelis to take that into account, how much the Americans can get into Israeli planning and thinking, I don't know. But that certainly seems to be a key theme that Americans are driving home in constant conversations with the Israelis. And they're not saying, you have to do it this way. But they're saying, have you thought about this piece? How are you planning to do this part? And the hope is that this will quietly change the way the Israelis see it. And there's some evidence that it's working, but we're just going to have to wait and see how the coming weeks evolve. Let's talk a little bit more about the United States' role in all of this. The U.S. administration announced that it will provide $100 million in humanitarian assistance for the Palestinian people in Gaza and the West Bank. President Biden has also requested a $105 billion military aid package for Israel, Ukraine, and other crises, with $14 billion earmarked for Israel's war with Hamas. What do these packages tell us about President Biden's strategy in Israel right now? What he's trying to do is larger than just Israel. It's partly about how to engage with Congress on the U.S. role in the world. It's partly about trying to get Republicans in Congress to legislate. It's certainly in part about sending a signal to Israelis, to American voters, that the United States wants to support Israel. But if you only focus on what the White House thinks Israel needs right now, that's a fraction of the calculation. I think a lot of it is about what role is the U.S. going to play in the world? And the U.S. does have interests in the president's mind in Israel, but also in Ukraine, also with Taiwan. And it requires the U.S. to engage. I think Congress is ambivalent. I think the American people are ambivalent. But the president is from a, an age where 
this was a bipartisan concern. And I think he's moving forward and trying to get bipartisan support for what he thinks is clearly in the American national interest. On Friday, Hamas released two U.S. civilians that they had taken hostage during their incursion into Israel. More than 200 hostages of various nationalities remain. Why were these hostages released, and how could an Israeli ground invasion affect the situation? We don't know why these hostages were released. We don't know if this is the beginning of a period of releasing a number of hostages. We don't know exactly how many hostages there are, what countries they're from. Uh, There seems to be, in the last several days, an increasing distinction in Israelis' minds between Israeli soldiers and civilians. There are a lot of civilians, and a lot of civilians who are arguably vulnerable. They're, They're very young, they're very old, some are sick. I don't know if we're about to have a flurry of hostage releases. It certainly would be welcome. Uh, It doesn't seem to me that there's a very good military rescue strategy for the hostages. And it also seems to me that the hostages' safety would be greatly compromised by a large-scale ground operation by the Israelis. The Israelis are telegraphing, we're going to do what we do without regard to the hostages. I think in some ways Hamas's calculations on the hostages altogether are hard for me to fathom. I don't think they had any notion that they were going to be in the position they're in now. Um, And I don't think they have a very clear idea how they're going to get out of it. Thank you very much for joining me, John. Thank you, Leah.